All right, we, we are continuing our study of the life of David. We, are, we just finished up Matthew, uh, excuse me, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 19, and Saul is pursuing David uh, uh, in a very aggressive way, and, and he has gone to uh, see if he can find David because he heard that David was with Samuel where the prophets were uh, in abode, and, and while there, the messengers that he had sent, the soldiers that he had sent beforehand to grab David, every time that they approached David, they started to prophesy. There was prophesying, and they were overcome and could not uh, detain David. And so finally Saul comes, and we learned in, in chapter 19, at the close of chapter 19, that Saul was so overcome by the Spirit of God that effectively he prophesied for, 20, for 24 hours. He took all his clothes off. And I told you last week that that was symbolic of the fact that God was taking the, effectively the indicia of the kingdom away from him. You are no longer in charge of this kingdom. And God, he was taking his robes and he was wound up being naked. And there he sat for 24 hours. And while this goes on, uh, David escapes. In fact, you can read that verse because I think it's interesting. Uh, verse 23, 1 Samuel 19, verse 23. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even upon him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his robes and also prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay, he, he lay that way all the day and night. That is why people say, is Saul among the prophets? Well, of course, Saul is not among the prophets. This had nothing to do with some uh, spiritual rededication of his life. In fact, what it was, was that God was overcoming him uh, in his evil intent for, a, for the purpose of allowing David to escape. Now, one of the things that we're going to do this year is we are periodically, or we are going to, to address certain psalms that David wrote uh, relative to the exact period of time we're studying. And one of those is Psalm 59. If you would turn there before we go any further. This is a very interesting exercise that I've been doing as I study this. To go back and try to find these psalms. Because you know growing up you read these psalms and they're, they're nice words. But you don't really recognize that they are written in the context of a particular trial. And so here, this psalm has been written by David uh, at the time that he was in his own home and Saul's men had surrounded the house and, and were about to kill him. And so now you're going to see the heart of this man as effectively as he's praying to God to deliver him. And I think it's very helpful to us as men to see how he approaches this and how he speaks to God uh, in, in this very close, intimate relationship. So let's read a few verses here, Psalm 59. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from evildoers, and save me from bloodthirsty men. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me. For no offense or sin of mine, O Lord, I have done no wrong. Yet they are ready to attack me. Arise to help me look on my plight. And so when you read this, the words seem almost to be gushing out of David's mouth. You can get the sense of, of anxiety 
and fear. I mean, to say that David doesn't find fear, is not fearful, and you're not studying the Bible. There's fear all over this. His life is in jeopardy. He's asking God to intervene. This is a pack of wild dogs, effectively, he's using that metaphor, these men who have come to kill him, uniting in a common effort. And what's so puzzling for David is, I haven't done anything, God. I haven't committed treason. I haven't done anything ill towards Saul. And so many of us have similar situations and been through similar situations in your life where you've been innocent, and yet, despite that, some attack has been made on you. And you see here how David responds to this in his prayer to God. God, I need, I need intervention. I need you to help me. Uh, verse 5. O Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations, so show no mercy to wicked traitors. Now, it's interesting that that verse is interposed in this personal attack that he's experienced. He's now asking God, he's looking beyond the personal attack and asking God to intervene on a broader basis on behalf of Israel for all those people who are, are traitors. Uh, and then he goes back to the personal. Verse 6, they return at evening. Can you imagine? They return at evening, snarling like dogs and prowl about the city. See what they spew from their mouths. They spew out swords from their lips, and they say, who can hear us? But you, Lord, you laugh at them. You scoff at all those nations. Uh, what, a, what a picture this is uh, of these men coming who basically uh, repudiate God. They repudiate God. They don't care about God. They don't care about this. They don't care that this man has been anointed and obviously has been protected by God. Uh, you see that, that they effectively blaspheme God, and now David is taking up the battle for God and saying, God, uh, my heart breaks for the way that they, that they arrogantly, arrogantly suppose themselves to be immune from detection. And isn't that the way, really, the attacks are made on us, where people arrogantly cause themselves to be immune from detection, that they can act in any way that they want, that God will not reach out to them. Uh, uh, and, you, and you see this. And then, and then he continues on here but in verse 8. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You scoff at all those nations. Uh, oh, my strength, I watch for you, O God. You, you are my fortress, my loving God. God will go before me and will let me gloat over those who slander me. And so right there in the middle of the attack, as he, as he prays to God and he reaches out to God, clearly God gives him an answer and you see him responding saying, I know you're with me. And I know, I know not only this, I know you will allow me to gloat over those who are trying to destroy me because you will have the last the last word, uh, and, and what a great verse this is uh, in that verse 10 there, that, that verse that says, my loving God, my loving God, God will go before me and will let me gloat over those who slander me, and that's a message for you today. They, many of you have been slandered. You've been hit with trials and temptations. There's evildoers around you, and you're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to serve God. You can't understand why this is happening. You don't understand it. Uh, and yet you need to abide in God uh, because God ultimately will fight your battles. 
God will do what is right. You need to rest in God, as you see this with, with David, resting uh, in, in God. And then we get to a very unique prayer. Uh, and I find it insightful uh, because it, it gives us something about the character of David. Verse 11. But do not kill them, O Lord, our shield, or my people will forget. In your might, make them wander about and bring them down for the sins of their mouths, for the words of their lips. Let them be caught in their pride for the curses and lies they utter. Consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more. Then it will be known to the ends of the earth that God rules over Jacob. Now, what is he saying? I want them punished, but I don't want it to be quick. <laughs> I've just translated for you our brother David. I want them destroyed, but I don't want it instantaneously. I want it drawn out. I want it to be gradual because I want the people of Israel to recognize what happens when you go against God's man. What happens when you go against God? Let the pain build up so that they will be taught a lesson. I bet you didn't think that was in a psalm. That sounds like a psalm written from New Jersey. And therein lies the beauty of this man. Therein lies the beauty of this man, because you see it as part of his character, all right? This, this tremendous warrior, this soldier, uh, this musician, this man who was sold out to God, yet you see that he still has these human characteristics that some of us might say are flaws, and yet you see that he, even as he does it, even as he's doing it and speaking this way, the essence of what he's doing is seeking justice from God, he wants justice from God. He wants God to set it right, to speak right, and to do, to do what he believes God, God needs to do. Uh, and so what a, what a powerful uh, set of verses they are there. Uh, and continuing on, then in verse 14, the men come back at night again. Verse 14, they return at evening snarling like dogs and prowl about the city. They wander about for food and howl if not satisfied, but I will sing of your strength in the morning. I will sing of your love, for you are my fortress and my refuge in times of trouble. O oh, my strength, I, I sing praise to you. O oh, God, you are my fortress, my loving God. What a great set of verses. And so as he comes to terms here with this. And so in the meantime, the, these human dogs, these messengers, these soldiers, return to the city searching for David. Uh, and prowling about, howling for his life, effectively. Howling for, for his life. Uh, and, and yet, as they do this, in the morning, in the morning, the son of Jesse, David himself, is singing. He is extolling the power and mercy of God himself because God has been a defense. God has been with him all night. And in the morning, he will, he will get freedom and be freed and be gone in the power of the love of God will surround him and protect him in every possible way. So what a powerful set of verses. What a powerful set of verses as you begin to see the impact of, uh, of, in David's life, even during these most profound times. His house is surrounded. They've come there to kill him. They want him dead. 
God is protecting him, and ultimately God will allow him to escape. And so now let's continue on with 1 Samuel chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20. And now we're going to uh, continue to read about this ongoing, incredible, affectionate relationship between David and Jonathan and, and how this relationship will grow and what an example it is to us to have godly friends in our lives, men who will stand up for you. Uh, this is an important lesson as well. And so let's read this chapter. Let's start with the first nine verses. Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah, and that's where Samuel was, and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to take my life? Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without confiding in me. Why would he hide this from me? It's not so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So David said, look, tomorrow is the new moon festival, and I am supposed to dine with the king. But let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after the, tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David, earnestly ask my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole uh, clan. If he says very well, then your servant is safe. If, but if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, I wouldn't tell you. Interesting dialogue here between the son of the king and what will be the new king. Uh, and Jonathan is an incredible example to, of, of God's man, how Jonathan is putting aside what would be his own personal future, uh, the fact that he would inherit the, the royal robes, be the king of Israel, and instead recognizes that David is due that position. And so now he's, he's proving to David, I'll protect you. I'll be in a position where, I'll, where I will look to you and, and protect you. David, in the meantime, feels that Jonathan is naive. I mean, and you have to really say that that seems appropriate, that, that, that Jonathan says his father would never do anything without speaking to, to uh, Jonathan first. Well, that doesn't seem true because we know of a couple of spear shots, right, <laughs> in, the in the palace that certainly had not, been given, uh, had not given Jonathan a, a heads up. And, and so you see here, David is struggling with strong fears. That's what this shows you. David, this great king, this great son of God, this, this person who will ultimately be within the lineage of Jesus Christ, is afraid. Now, what does that mean for us? It means this, that even as we sit under God, and even as we trust God, and we put our lives before God, and ask for God's protection, we're still human beings. And as you see here, even though David knew that God had anointed him, that he would be protected, yet he was 
fearful. He was afraid of his life. And so now he's trying to come up with some methodology that would allow him to be protected. Uh, and so he basically induces Jonathan to tell his father a lie. Uh, and uh, it's interesting because as we study David's life here, early life, you will see that, that more often than you would suspect, David does get involved in some, I'll call it, misinterpretation of the truth. That's, that's lawyer language for your lying. You're, you're a dirty liar, you know. But you see this because it's this, this juxtaposition between accepting God, knowing God is protecting me, and yet look at the howling dogs who are outside my window, uh, and they're going to kill me. And so you see that, and it's a lesson to us that God understands. God knows your weaknesses. God, 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 God gives us allowances uh, as we do that. Uh, and, and so you see that in this story. And so... Uh, it's, it's very poignant. And so De- uh, Jonathan promises to protect David. Don't worry. Nothing's going to happen to you. I'm going to protect you. I'll be there for you. And David reiterates the covenant that they've made. Remember, we have made this covenant before God. You have promised to protect me, to be with me before God as I with you. Um, and uh, this is very, very poignant. Uh, what's interesting here is as we read this, in fact, read the, I want to read the next few verses. Come, Jonathan said, let's go out into the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, by the Lord, the God of Israel, I will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed towards you, I will not send you word. Will, will, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father is inclined to harm you, May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away safely. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Now, I want to repeat and reiterate verse 14 and 15 because it shows you the heart of this man and the fact that he understood God was protecting David. He understood that. And so as he knows that, he's saying to David, I I know you're under God's protection. And at some point, God is going to strike down every single one of your enemies, including royalty, and including the Philistines. And so you see this here in verse 14. But show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Underline this. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Protect my family even when I'm not here. Protect my family. And so uh, there's an amazing passage as we, 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 uh, we look at this and we see uh, a study of a man named uh, Mephibosheth. Easy for you to say. <laughs> Mephibosheth. All right? Mephibosheth. 
Mephibosheth, David, years later, years later, David will be uh, ensconced as the king. Years have gone by. And Mephibosheth will be the grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan, and he is a cripple. He can't walk. Uh, And according to theologians, one of the reasons he's crippled is that when this uh, royal mutiny is going on, and Saul is fighting against David, that, that the caretaker of Mephibosheth was fearful uh, and grabbed him to run and dropped him as a baby, and his, and his legs were malformed. They weren't set right, and so he really became a cripple, and he could never walk right. And so now, uh, as a uh, young man, he's sitting in hiding, basically, uh, that David has taken over, and he's in fear because he's fearful that as a grandson of, of Saul, he's going to be destroyed. And David makes this request to the former head of the household of Saul. Is there any member of Saul's family still alive? Is there anyone still alive? Uh, and the caretaker says, well, yeah, there's this, this young man called Mephibosheth. And he said, he's a cripple. Bring him here. And Mephibosheth comes in. And of course, he's fearful. His father's dead. His grandfather is dead. He has no reason to believe that there's going to be any grace given to him. And yet David takes him in. David embraces him and says to him, for the rest of your life, you will sit and dine at the king's table. The expression of grace extended. Unmerited grace. And this is where David fits the role of Jesus Christ. That there it is. This Mephibosheth, who is crippled, just as you're crippled, just as you're crippled spiritually. And you see uh, the metaphors of how God is writing this story. This young man is brought in and embraced and taken care of and provided for the rest of his life. That shows you the loving grace of God as extended through David. That is not what you would expect typically to take place Uh, from a man who had been fighting Saul, who who Saul had tried to destroy him. David didn't count that against the family of Saul and instead embraced him and fulfilled this promise to Jonathan. And so here it is. You can imagine this this crippled person being in the royal palace. I'm sure people came in there and wondered, who is this? Who is this? What is this about? And yet that's what it was, the promise of God, the promise of God, the grace of God. Uh, And we, as Christians, experience that grace all the time through Jesus. This is what grace is about, unmerited favor, unmerited favor. And you see this story, and it's it's so powerful to me uh, to understand this. And so grace, grace seeks to find us where we are at, where we are at. Uh, You don't have to be a certain kind of a person to get the grace of God. Grace finds you out when you are one of God's children. Grace comes where you need it. He finds us, and grace follows us no matter where we are, even when we have fallen into sin. So what I just said. Grace is there for you from Jesus Christ even when you have fallen into sin. Grace brings us back into the presence of the king. That's what grace does. Uh, grace is inspired through the Holy Spirit. It's unmerited favor. This is what separates us from the world, the grace. And I told you 
uh, in some of my other classes that people study ethics. You'll see people say, well, I, I believe that the way to get to heaven is to lead a good and moral life. You see, if I lead a good and moral life, God will recognize me and I'll be embraced in heaven. And the, re and the answer to that is no, no. Why? Because you can't lead a good and moral life without the grace of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? amen? You understand how important that is? You cannot lead a good life without the grace of Jesus Christ. And I know some of you are saying, well, come on, I know some good people. I know some good people that are seemingly doing good things, but what you don't recognize is the heart of those people. That even though seemingly for the outside world, it looks as if there are good things being done, but generally speaking, people that do those things are doing them for their own self-advancement. Rare, rare, rare ever do you see some person doing some good things without any credit whatsoever. Without any credit whatsoever. There's always some angle involved when human beings are doing this. And so there's the answer. You cannot live a good life. You could study Aristotelian ethics from today until God comes back. And unless you have the grace of Jesus Christ, you will not be able to fulfill them. That's as simple as that. And so you see here what grace does for David um, and, and how David, even though he had been treated so harshly uh, by, by Saul, who tried to destroy him. Even so, that was the case, yet David rises above it all, rises above it all, and reaches out uh, to this, this poor man, this poor uh, young man, and brings him into the presence of the king. And so it's a great, a great story. And so one of the things that I see here as I read these verses up to verse 15 or so, I see here that there's almost a role reversal going on between Jonathan and David. Um, and, and, it's, and it's interesting because now all of a sudden Jonathan is asking David to protect him and his family. You notice? Will you protect us? Will you protect my family? It's almost as if uh, Jonathan has seen the fact that, evil, that, that the evil of his father is going to, to be wiped out. And you see that in the way that he talks. Uh, and, and so you see it. And so it almost is, it as, is as if during this time, Jonathan had more faith than David. Because David is fearful of his life. David is afraid that he's going to be killed. And yet Jonathan is seen beyond that. Jonathan is saying, remember me. Remember my family when you take over. Remember me. And so you see this, how, how, how this dear man is expressing himself to David. And frankly, that had to be very affirming to hear, to hear uh, Jonathan talk like that. And so let's continue on reading verses uh, 18 to 23. <clears throat> then Jonathan said to David, tomorrow is the new moon festival. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow, to toward evening, go to the place where you hid when this trouble began and wait by the stone ezel. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, and as though I were shooting at a target, then I will send a boy and say, go find the arrows. If I say to him, look, the arrows are on this side of you, bring them here, then come, because as surely as the Lord lives, you are safe. There is no danger. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go, because the Lord has sent you away. 
and about the matter you and I discussed, remember, the Lord is witness between you and me forever. So this is a rather elaborate ruse that they set up in order to protect David, this idea that he would go out into a field uh, and, and shoot arrows so that uh, he would be protected. And you're going to see that that's exactly what happens. Continuing on, verse 24. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon festival came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan, and Abner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he is unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today. Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family, our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. Of course, you know that's a, that's a lie. Verse 30, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. <laughs> you got to love the guy. I have had nothing to do with you. This is your mother. And I, what you love about the Bible is it's cleaned up. You can imagine what it probably really said. You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. Oh, not good, not good. Jonathan, maybe you slightly misunderstood your dad's intentions. They seem pretty evil to me. He must die. Bring him to me. Uh, and so you see the evil overwhelming, the evil overwhelming this man. And remember, this was a man who at one point was anointed by God. But you see that the anointing doesn't stay forever. That when your heart becomes evil, that you don't submit to God, that the anointing leaves. I mean, that's... that's you know, that's the lesson here. And so, so as we see this, now bring him, send and bring him to me for he must die. Verse 32. And you've got to love Jonathan. I mean, obviously he recognized that he's dealing with a psychopath, right? And yet he's still trying to reason with him. Verse 32. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. I like that last line. You think? You think? I mean, can you see the hatred that has overwhelmed this man, the evil that has overwhelmed this man? I mean, and I'm going to say to you folks that at times you're going to come across people like this in your life. You're going to come across these kind of things. There's not a guy here that probably hasn't experienced this in some way. It may have been a boss. Uh, it may have been somebody where, where you work. I mean, there are a, a million examples uh, of how evil, evil comes out 
and perpetuates itself, and it's, it's, it's incontrovertible. You can't sit there and talk it back because it's, it's demonic. Uh, and so it's so bad here that he tries to kill his own son. He tries to kill his own son. You see that, that, that his very intentions have been taken over. It's a powerful story. As you see the, the uh, depths that, that Satan will go to really upend God's plan. There's, an, there's another example that if God has a plan for you in your life, and he does, and you're following God, and you're walking in God's way, don't think it's going to be an easy walk. Don't think it's going to be an easy walk. Even people that may want to help you, it's going to be hard for them. And so you see this picture where suddenly, suddenly he, tr- he tries to kill, to kill uh, Jonathan. Jonathan got up from the table, verse 34, uh, in fierce anger, Uh, On that second day of the month, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for the meeting with David. He had a small boy with him, and he said to the boy, run and find the arrows I I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing of all this. Only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave the weapons to the boy and said, go carry them back into town. And so after the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Now you see this this poignant uh, passage where David is now realizing this is it. I'll never be able to go back. I will not be able to go back again to the palace while Saul is alive. And that's exactly what happened. He will not go back. Years will go by as David is being pursued uh, in the most ugly, ugly way possible as uh, David's life uh, is, is sought to be taken from him. And, and he realizes also that most likely he's not going to be able to have this ongoing friendship with Jonathan because Jonathan will be with his father. And he's heartbroken. This is not the plan that he had for his life. This is not what he thought uh, God would do with his life when he was anointed. He can't understand it. It doesn't make sense. Why am I going through this? Why do I have to go through this turmoil? And you have to sit back and ask yourself honestly, yeah, this, this does seem severe, God. This does seem severe. If I'm writing this story and David is your man, he's your guy, you've anointed him, you've taken the anointing away from Saul, why would you allow this to go on? And he's God and you're not. He's God and you're not. And we could never, ever understand the reasoning of God. We don't know how God thinks or why God does what he does or the vision that God has or how how short or long a period he's looking at. You know, I often say that we, as men, we're lucky if we can see in our lives 50 feet down the road. If there's a curve, we have no idea where we're going, and yet God sees eternity. And so who knows how God was saying, this man will be my man, but he needs to be trained in the most bitter, difficult times. He needs to be put in a place in the cauldron of temptation so that he will understand what it's like, why I need a king, 
of this country who will be a king forever. I need a man who will be in the lineage of Jesus Christ, and I need this man to be my man. And so all this goes on, and you say to yourself, it just doesn't make sense. It's so hard. What is the point? And yet God, God is in charge. God is in charge. God knows what he's doing. Uh, and that's what we have to bow in submission before God. And that's why we have these wristbands that we have. And you see that I have a, a new supply outside. I hope you pick some up and you can take ex- extras. Because basically it says, Lord, I submit your will, not mine. And it's great to say that when things are going good. It's not so easy to say it when things are going hard. When things are going hard. When your friends turn against you. When circumstances turn against you. When relationships turn against you. It's not easy to say, Lord, I submit your will. Instead, what do we say? What are you doing to me? Why are you putting me through this? Don't you know who I am? I'm your guy. And yet you want to be able to say, God, give me the grace to understand your will in my life. Understand the will in my life that I can bow in submission and accept your will. And so you see this picture here. uh, And this is so poignant to me as you see David being really put into the cauldron and tested and squeezed in a way that we, we, we can't even understand it, can't even, can't even really give it lip service. It's so difficult. And so here he is weeping. He's weeping because he recognizing it's all over. I'll never be able to go back to the palace. Those days are over. I can't do it any longer. I can't go there. My friend Jonathan, I'm probably not going to see him anymore. I'm going to be cut off. I'm going to be a fugitive, and he would be a fugitive for years as Saul would continue to pursue him. He would be a a fugitive. And then then you read in verse 42, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back to town. And so you see this this great story and Jonathan reaffirming the fact that I'm with you, David, I won't abandon you. I'll be your friend. I won't walk away. You can count on it. My, I will be there. Remember my family. Remember, remember us when you come into power. And years later, years later, David will remember these lessons. David would remember these lessons. And he would remember what he went through. And he would remember Jonathan's affirmation. Uh, and he would seek out to protect the child of Jonathan, the grandchild of Saul, Mephibosheth. Uh, even though there was no reason, no reason why he would go and help a cripple. No advantage to do that. No advantage to bring that crippled boy back into his presence. No advantage except for the overwhelming, abiding grace of God. That when the grace of God comes into your life and you see these circumstances that that your heart melts, and you give that grace to those who need that grace. It doesn't matter where you are, grace will find you. When you've accepted Jesus Christ, you get the full panoply of the Trinity, and that includes the grace of Jesus Christ in every aspect of your life. If you leave here today, that's one of the things I want you to remember, that no matter how hard it is, how difficult the times may be that you're going through, that God will be with you. God will protect you. His grace will be with you. 
that no matter how, how tough it is, God will not abandon you. When it seems like it makes no sense, did it seem like it made sense here? Often the things that we go through make no sense. We are swimming in a sea of evil. Honestly, sea of evil. Uh, and you are God's men. You have a mark on your back. Trust me. Satan would like nothing better than to destroy you and to bring you down. Lift yourself up and ask God for his grace and mercy in your life. Submit to him. Uh, and you know that this story winds up being glorious. The end of this story is spectacular. And we will continue that next Monday. I'll be here on Monday. I won't be in, in uh, church on Sunday, but I'll be here on Monday. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for the words that you've given us. Lord, we are just uh, uplifted so much as we study the life of David, as we see the trials and temptations, and yet, Lord, you lifted him up and you affirmed him, even though we can't understand it as men. And so, Lord, we bow in submission to you, Lord. We understand that you're God, you're sovereign, and we're not. And so as we submit to you, Lord, we understand that in the end, you know what's best for us. As you take our lives and mold our lives, even when it's difficult, even when it hurts, even when there's pain and suffering, you are there molding us and making us. And help us, Lord, to accept this and to accept your grace. Be with our men, Father. Be with our men this week. Protect them with whatever they do and bring them back safely to continue study the word next Monday. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you.